0: How long are you going to have a Twitter account? 10 years from now, or 15 years from now, are you going to spend any time on Twitch or Tinder? Are you going to run to see what's going on on TikTok? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about tech adoption and longevity. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. And then a seven-year-old kid in, in Texas starts knocking on doors, and he's asking for his age in dollars. 77, 777. He raises 22 grand. And we said, wow, this is a big idea. You know, everybody in the world could care about clean water. Everybody in the world has a birthday every year. And we have enough stuff. What if we could turn the birthday into a giving moment? into an unselfish day, our birthdays, so people could live longer and have birthdays. To find out more, visit CharityWater.org. In 1976, when I was 16 years old, I got my first email account. Today, in 2020, I spent more than an hour answering email. In 1967, more Then 50 years ago, I remember listening to the Beatles. I listened to the Beatles this morning. Why is it that some technology sticks around? 20 years ago, I had a GeoCities account. I also had an AOL account and a CompuServe account. In fact, I spent most of my time in 1995 on AOL, Sethwood at AOL.com was my email address. We read articles about how texting was the big thing in Japan and how it was coming here. And people said, well, it might one day, but it won't last very long. That was more than 20 years ago. In 1998, so many people were using Yahoo that many people thought Yahoo and the Internet were the same thing. And it was believed that their hegemony, their dominance over everything, would continue forever. They were going to buy eBay and Netscape, and that would be the end of the game. Why is it that some things come and some things go? Culture is built on technology. Books are a technology. They were a brand new idea 500 years ago. And 500 years later, people are still buying and reading books. And what about board games? People are playing 90-year-old board games today. Cars? Well, for the basics of a car, the four wheels, the steering wheel, the internal combustion engine, the driver who is in charge, the horn, this is 90 years all in a row. But other things, they cycle a little bit more quickly. Kodachrome had a 50-year run. Kodachrome. And now we see that the industry of cameras, not just film cameras, but digital cameras, is down 90%. Movies, well, you can invite somebody over to watch a movie from 1972 or 1974 without apologizing for it. But maybe not so much anymore. They had a good 50-year run. The Beatles, rock and roll, that's a 55-year run. GeoCities went away, but Twitter, though it is technically completely obsolete, sticks around. I want to argue, after that opening rant, that there might be five or six factors at work here. The first one is this. Early adopters. Early adopters are fickle. They show up because they want something that is new. They read articles about what's going on at the Consumer Electronics Show their favorite thing to do with a piece of technology, whether it's an issue of a magazine or a new form of silicon, is to talk about something about it that's new. And then, as Yogi Berra taught us, they say, well, it's too crowded. No one goes there anymore. So the people who were all excited about Raspberry Pi a couple years ago are now on to the next thing. So if a technology is fueled and supported just by early adopters, it's likely it's not going to last that long. That's one of the many reasons tech companies are so focused at crossing the chasm. Jeff Moore's idea that early adopters want something different than the early majority. The early majority will buy something, embrace something, work with something, not because it's new, but because it works. And so there's a chasm, a gulf between the things that are new and the things that work, and maybe you can cross that chasm. So the argument could be made that if you play in politics, Twitter has crossed the chasm, that if you want to be in the discussion among the 10 or 15 million people who live and die for this stuff in the United States, you got to be on Twitter. And it doesn't matter that Twitter is technically obsolete because for people in that industry, it is Useful. Or consider what happened to WordPerfect. WordPerfect was the best word processor, the dominant word processor, the word processor forever, because after all, how could you make a word processor that much better? And then Microsoft Word came along. And at first, no one switched to Word, except for some early adopters. But there aren't that many word processor early adopters. We've seen them before. They've embraced Scrivener. There are people like me who use Nisus, but in general, not too many of us. So just a few embraced Word. But then Microsoft did something extraordinary, that by hooking it in to the operating system of Windows and selling Windows across the chasm, Word came with it, and WordPerfect never knew what hit them. So here we are 40 years later, 30 years later, and Word is still dominant. That is, until we start counting online word processors like Google Docs, which have the advantage of being free and being networked, which leads to the next idea, the network effect. What we know about culture and about computers is that if it works better when other people use it, people are more likely to talk about it. What does that have to do with tech? Well, the internet has brought network effects deep into almost everything that we have in tech. That a walkie-talkie, when you're the only one who has one, doesn't do you any good. So you got to get your friends to get a walkie-talkie or a fax machine. But now that we're on the internet, it's true for everything. A Google Doc works better than a Word doc because a Google Doc is effortless to share. And once people start sharing it, It becomes sticky because if you want to switch to a new thing, you have to persuade every one of the people you got to use the old thing that they have to switch to. The early adopters brought people along, but now the people hold the early adopters back. Slack worked, one of the fastest growing pieces of software in history, because you can't use it by yourself. When Microsoft and others show up with a competitor to Slack, they have a problem, which is that teams that are currently using Slack are in no hurry to switch to something that's new. But what about books? Because books don't really have the same sort of network effect. You can happily read a book all by yourself. Books benefit from the idea of infrastructure and partners. In order for books to become the dominant force of information dispersal in the 1800s and the 1900s, they needed bookstores. So an entire industry was built on the idea that you can have a little store that you can run yourself as a lifestyle business that sells books. It doesn't sell phones. It doesn't sell batteries. It rarely sells pencils. It sells books. And the book publishers quickly came to understand That their customer wasn't the reader. Their customer was the bookstore. Because if they could make bookstores happy, they would get more than their fair share of shelf space. If they got the shelf space, they would sell more books. That's why the typical reader doesn't know who published what. They don't need to know. They're not the customer. The bookstore is the customer. So now we have bookstores that are heavily invested in books persisting, even though they are technologically obsolete, because they're not culturally obsolete. That the scarcity that makes it worth owning a bookstore, that there are a finite number of bookstores and a finite number of books, it has helped keep books vibrant in the face of cheaper, faster, more networked alternatives. So what this means is that when book innovations showed up, it wasn't just the publishers and the early majority readers who were fighting against the innovations. It was an entire industry of printers and salespeople and bookstore owners that wanted the status quo to remain. I think the same could probably be said about professionals with film cameras, that once you're good at Kodachrome, once you're making a living with Kodachrome, you're not necessarily in a hurry to replace all of it with a digital technology. It was only when the groundswell from the bottom up came and swamped it finally with shareable photos that were coming from smartphones that finally the camera industry collapsed. The next idea is the idea of utility versus novelty. Geocities had very little utility. You didn't build a business on the back of Geocities, but Sites like Shopify enable people to build a whole business around it. Kickstarter probably isn't the cutting edge in technology anymore, but if you are a professional Kickstarter creator or a professional eBay seller, you're not looking for novelty. You're looking for utility. And then the next one, the next one, spoken as a young baby boomer, is that baby boomers think that everything is about them. And so, rock and roll persisted for 40 or 50 years. So, the movies of the 70s, 80s, and 90s persisted for 30 years. These generational shifts happen very slowly. But what's happening now, for the first time in history, is that the generation coming of age, teenagers and 20s, grew up with a smartphone. They grew up with always-on internet, with the network, with constant shifts in the technological platform. And so as the baby boomers die off, as we take naps instead of going to see what's new in technology, this generational shift is putting together one more giant change in the culture. So when we think about whether or not a technology is going to change things, I think we have to look at each one of these five functions, all of which dance right next to each other, all of which influence each other, and then we can decide, is this a novelty? Is it going to be embraced by the early adopters? Are there network effects that matter? Are people from one generation or another driving the change forward? But as William Goldman famously said, nobody knows anything It's way easier after the fact to point out that, of course, email lasts forever. But no, your CompuServe address doesn't matter one bit. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with answers to questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, Don't watch a video. Don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. As you know, I love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any other episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. we got three questions to go over this week. Here we go.
2: Hi, Seth. This is Jamal from Queens, New York. The the Consolidation Publishing episode had me thinking. Penguin and other large publishers can probably have their readers opt-in simply by asking for their emails in the folds of the book i.e., permission marketing. But what about the upstart? When an author or artist decides to go off on their own and they have answered the questions what is, it, what is it for, who's it for, and what it's meant to change? How do they find and connect with the smallest viable audience? Thanks for your work. Have a great new year.
0: Thanks, Jamal. I'm going to flip this on its head. I think it's easier for a specific author with a specific audience to earn permission. Than it is for Random House, because I got to tell you, I don't really trust Random House, and most people don't either, because they're not the ones who wrote the book. They're not the ones who have shown up in someone's life. They're just the publisher, and deep down, I think that people have been taught to believe that big companies will keep expanding how much permission they think they have until they turn into spammers. So the hard work that Random House faces is not having a Random House list because that's not going to work. What they have to do is organize very tight, very specific lists for people who they can earn trust from. But if you're a specific author and you have found even a portion of your smallest viable audience, well then serving them, serving them regularly, often for no charge, is a great way to turn attention into trust. And once you've earned that trust, now you're on your way to your 1,000 true fans. And as Kevin Kelly taught us, 1,000 true fans is enough.
2: Hey, Seth. This is Ben Modell from New York City. And I have a question about a phenomenon you may or may not have covered that's related to the concept of finding the smallest viable audience. And that is of what I think of as audience capacity. I've noticed over several years of producing and marketing my shows and attending others of the same genre, that rather than continuing to gradually snowball, the audience size for something kind of maxes out or just holds steady. Over the last 10 years, a monthly film series I produce has always been held, until March 2020, of course, in a 215-seat auditorium. Our audience turnout has always been somewhere within the seating capacity range of the theater, With a low of maybe 185, and on a couple of occasions every year when we sell out, we're only turning a dozen or so people away. This is regardless of what we're showing, whether I've remembered or forgotten to send out a press release, the size of our email list, or even when the local PBS affiliate did a profile on our series on TV. I've been producing and distributing a boutique line of DVDs since 2013, and with one or two minor exceptions, Sales of each has been in the same range, regardless of the amount of press I get or who's in the movie on the DVD. In March of this year, I started doing a live stream show on YouTube with a friend every week. And again, the number of viewers who watch us live and who also then watch the shows that have been archived in the days following is about the same. My question about audience capacity is, if this is a facet of the human condition or marketing you or anyone's noticed thanks so much
0: thanks ben this fits in very nicely with jamal's question because you have correctly pointed out that some things we do will never cross a chasm that some things we do are just not destined to appeal to masses and masses of people and not only is that okay that's fantastic as long as we realize it that the yield on that theater and i can't wait post-vaccine until we have theaters again, is the key. If you fill the theater, you'll do fine. The problem is getting a theater that's too big and not filling it. The yield is what is our return on the audience we focused on. And if we know we have a niche audience, we can treat them appropriately. We will not spend all of our time and effort trying to somehow cross a chasm to dumb it down, or to even it out. We will instead become ever more specific and ever more peculiar, so that the audience we do have gets the joke and comes back. Because getting someone to come back is different than getting someone to tell their friends.
1: On impact theory the other day, you said something that I'll paraphrase as, I do not believe in authenticity, It's not correct to think that you can do whatever you feel like and that whatever version of you that pops into your head is the authentic one. The audience does not want an authentic you. You do not want an authentic anybody when you hire someone. Close paraphrase. You went on to develop this sentiment into emphasizing the importance of consistency and that perhaps the right to be authentic or inconsistent needs to be earned. I don't think you mean to make it sound like we need to sell our souls for the sake of a paying audience or reshape ourselves into a brand that an audience will pay us for. Do you believe there is a part of our authentic selves that is worth sharing with the world? And can that only be discovered through financial or audience feedback? Thank you for your time and generosity.
0: Thank you, Jonathan, for this lovely question. Uh, So grateful to hear from you. Here's the thing. If we want to, quote, "share our authentic self with mm. the public, with any public, well then a transaction is going on. It might not be a transaction for money, but it is certainly a transaction for attention. Sharing how you feel in the moment with friends and family is one of the great benefits of having friends and family is that they will be friends and family even after your short tantrum, even after, the speed bump, even after you share your fears or dreams. But if we're going to a larger group of people, if we are showing up as any sort of professional or community member, well, then every time we do show up, we are borrowing, basically taking someone's attention. And if we waste that attention, we have burned their trust. And it's harder to get that attention next time. And so No, I don't think we have the privilege or the right to share how we are feeling in this moment, call it authentic if you want, I'd rather not, with anybody we feel like. We just don't get to do that because our culture belongs to all of us. Places like Twitter tried to get around that by saying, well, you will only be heard by the people who follow you, and in the small, I think that is true, that when it is originally conceived, if you have 50 people following you, they have signed up for the full you, the you in all of its shades. The problem happens when media companies decide they will grow by encouraging sharing, because now what happens is all sorts of behavior, outlying behavior, gets shared more frequently than, quote, normal behavior. And what we end up with, if we take a glance At any form of social media, is it seems like everyone is going crazy. Everyone's not going crazy. That's just what's getting shared. And I'm encouraging you not to do that for a living, not to do that as a form of sustenance, because what we need to do at some level is get back to the center of doing productive work, work that matters for people who care whether or not we're getting paid for it, because we are not just takers from the culture, we are contributors to the culture. So that's my rant. Thanks everybody for listening. We'll see you next time.
3: I just don't think it's possible or probable in in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere. You know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like, we have data. What All MBA Gets Right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas. You got access to information. That's awesome. But when are you are going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and We don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up.
0: Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.